Welcome, one and all, to Discovery, a Star Trek podcast by Fantastic Geek, your official, unofficial Star Trek Discovery podcast. My name is Matt, and joining me, as always, is Pete. Ahoy, Pete. Do you actually think the beard is working? Discovery, a Star Trek podcast by Fantastic Geek, for episode 208, if memory serves, comes to you now via susceptive psychogenic abilities. And just a bit of fleet news before we arrive at the episode. On the Picard series front, CBS has announced the addition of actors Santiago Cabrera and Michelle Hurd. Both are playing unnamed roles in the unnamed series. And there's a link to that press release in our podcast notes. Yes, there was quite a bit of discussion on social media this week regarding the uh, descriptions for the roles that went public last week um you got to understand that the rate at which things leak to the public is behind where they obviously are in terms of production um and then there was concern are these real the source doesn't seem legitimate etc etc the source where they leaked is not always the source where other people might see them and then let's understand too matt the matter of journalistic integrity. Pete, I have long since stopped wondering where it is that uh, good old spoiler Pete gets his information sometimes. And uh, I don't know, when you, put a, when you put a floater out there, when you put out a theory, when you put out something that, uh, th- that uh, in your mind has been sourced, you know, I feel like the source is always good. I'm never going to bring something up on the podcast, on social media that I haven't independently confirmed. And that goes back to my days as a full-time journalist and a teacher of journalists. So you're going to hear it here. You're going to hear it locked down. Go back. Listen to last week. I said the thing that I cannot and will not confirm are the descriptions, specifically the names. But... This stuff is being done, and very soon we're going to get casting announcements. What happened within hours? Pete, shortly after our uh, our Discovery podcast from last week went to press, as they say, uh, these casting announcements dropped for uh, Mr. Cabrera and Ms. Hurd. Yes, and Ms. Hurd we have experience with from a prior podcast. She was in season two of Daredevil. She played the district attorney that uh, prosecuted Frank Castle and ultimately paid the price. So with those two announcements public, there have since been some more casting uh, decisions that have not yet gone public. Um, Very interested to see how they'll slot in. Matt, we're moving ever closer. Uh, April is when they're going to begin to lens that show and uh, can't wait to start bringing that to you. The growth of Star Trek, it's just phenomenal what's going on right now. Do I think every series is going to be a home run? Well, Pete, I expect a home run to continue to to happen for Discovery. I expect great things from the unnamed Picard series. I'm maybe a little less excited about the lower decks, but I'll certainly check it out with an open mind and, uh, and, uh, you know, the interest to check it out as you know as this new thing as this new way to present star trek stories and uh more star trek is always a good thing i think lower decks will really surprise some people uh in terms of its 
quality and watchability when we ultimately get it. I mean, Patrick Stewart, you don't see, need to say anything more than that. And now for our mission briefing. Previously on the Star Trek. Pete, that wonderful presentation of footage from the cage presented, uh, you know, in its kind of grainy film way uh, with uh, the original effects intact, you know, the old, the old, old style Enterprise, even before those effects went digital for the latest releases of classic Trek and uh, that neat kind of 2D, 3D way in which we zip through the story, high octane, high upbeat recap, then boom, the hard cut from Pike of old to Pike of now. Uh, we get his personal log. A little recap there. Burnham is looking for Spock, and he hopes that she will find Spock before Section 31 does. Whoever made the decision to have the furthest spaced previously on, I mean, what are we talking? Nearly 60 years, 57 years of difference between what what you saw last time and where we pick up the story uh, that was tremendously done, slam dunk all the way. And like you said, to go into the hard cuts to, to give us the personal log here, start eight, one, five, three, two point nine. Boom. We transfer from Pike to Captain Leland ship where he and Georgiou have a holographic conversation with a lead female Vulcan Admiral Patar. Uh, who accuses Burnham of more mutiny for fleeing with her brother. And Leland accepts responsibility. The previously glimpsed Andorian Admiral asks about the shuttle, and Georgiou explains Burnham disabled the transponder. Patar says she can't hide forever with Spock in need of vital medical intervention, which Georgiou surmises limits their destinations. She wants a list of off-planet Vulcan med medical facilities. Pitar says controls threat analysis system will prioritize those. Pitar asks for other suggestions. Not so fast, Leland. Yes, Leland, fast seeing how Giorgio's plan of slowly uh, destabilizing him, it's happening in real time as uh, they want to hear more from Giorgio. Uh, she recommends sending out a Starfleet all call, but skipping the discovery. It's not the time for Section 31, nor the brass to tip their hand. What with those personal connections between uh, Burnham and uh, Spock and Pike. Pitar also confirms that Specialist Tyler, of course, will report anything unusual that's happening on Discovery. Conversation over. Leland pushes back on Giorgio. Things didn't work out that great in her universe, did they? The last time she tried some of these shenanigans. Cut to Giorgio on the horn with Pike. Uh, Burnham is naughty, 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 aiding and abetting. But Discovery can help in a big, big way by searching through all that probe debris. Yeah, but um, Pike points out that uh, Spock is helping her brother as much as Tyler says that her logic is always guiding her. So uh, he doesn't want Discovery sidelined after Georgiou leaves the conversation because, you know, she's busy and such with her cup of coffee in her hand. And 
he then inquires into the personal nature of his of Tyler's relationship with Burnham. He explains they were in love, but their trust broke down. He promises his feelings won't impact the mission. En route to Talos Four, the shuttle computer details how Talos is one of 11 planetary bodies in its system, a warp-capable Class M planet with a thriving population until a nuclear war several thousand years ago, leaving only a small group remaining possessing susceptible psychogenic abilities. Starfleet has prohibited travel to the Talos system. Burnham injects Spock with a hypospray, and they enter prohibited space, which appears to be a black hole. Indeed, Pete, that black hole all set on killing them, you know, as black holes are wont to do. Burnham is ready to turn around and warp on out of there, but the previously borderline comatose-looking Spock suddenly stops her. There's perhaps a little... Uh, martial arts move there and uh, he takes the shuttle into the deathly black hole there's a story clock counting down to death five four three two one then the black hole is gone replaced with the planet burnham intuits that this was a test we go to the credits which show our regulars each name appearing on beat no less i'm when i wonder if that was maybe the original concept and then some episodes you don't have this one or you don't have that one but Really nice little addition there. The episode is written by Dan Dworkin and Jay Beatty and directed by T.J. Scott, who uh, returns after helming an episode last season. We head to the Discovery, where Stamets is adamant to Culber that not much has changed, that everything is completely situation normal. How are you? Crew members stare at the no longer dead Culber, and uh, it's around this time, Pete, when Culber and Stamets notice Tyler. Yes, Colbert also uh, rejecting Stamets' overture to take advantage of all his personal time. You know, that personal time he never gave him before because he spent all of his time in the lab. Um, but it looks like his memory's intact. They see Tyler walking down the corner. Stamets says that he's glad he was with Colbert when that happened. He intends to make a formal request that Tyler's quarters be moved to a different deck. And they arrive in their quarters as Tyler gets in a turbo lift. The story stays with Tyler, who goes to the bridge. Arium, Pete, Arium can't find any corrupted files. And Pike is working on a side mission with Saru. It's called uh, The Search for Spock and Burnham. Uh, Tyler wags his finger at the captain. The missions should be all about probe recovery. With this, he's referred to Tilly, who notes recovering one metric ton of material, all shuttle. We get a quick cut to Arian while Tilly notes that there has been no probe found yet. Interesting indeed. Pike says he's still stationary uh, against Tyler's requests that they not go after Burnham and Spock as directed. But uh, he's not going to ignore a crisis involving his officers. Shutter lands on Talos Four, and Burnham takes a look around with a phaser. She encounters the old-school melodic chiming of the blue singing flowers and then notices a human woman enter the shuttle. This, of course, uh, Talos Four looking much like the Canadian quarry site that was used as the mirror resistance base last season, but Pete, there's only so many weirdo alien planets, you know, within a good drive of toronto so it is what it is 
Um, but indeed, Pete, Vina arrives um, wearing, shall we say, older style garb. Um, she is human, but a permanent resident, Vina is. She's also happy to see Spock again. She wonders if Chris is coming too. Pete, that's Captain Pike to you and me. Uh, Vina gives a little expositional recap, in be, uh, including being put back together. She passes along a message from the Talosians. They are welcome to come below, Burnham and Spock are. They want to help Spock. Burnham realizes that that's why Spock brought them here in the first place. Yes, that he's been in communication with them, which causes Spock to slam his fist on the console before they beam below the planet's surface. Vina is simultaneously beneath the surface as well. She is very real, explains the Telosian male, who also apologizes for the illusory defense in the atmosphere. They don't only speak telepathically either. The Telosian female says Spock is experiencing time as a fluid rather than a linear construct. His logic has failed him. The male says he will lose his mind without their help. They will show Burnham his thoughts, but will require something in return. The memory of their painful childhood conflict on Vulcan. How convenient, Matt. We, like the Telosians, need that to understand, to survive as well, despite Burnham's pushback, survive another way. This is a kind of classic moment, a classic crux to highlight how Discovery multi-story arcs work. Because we, of course, as the audience, have been headed towards this reveal for several episodes this season. Uh, I guess kind of vaguely implied at in the last season uh, with concern of is Spock on the, on the Enterprise, you know, at the end of season one. So you had made a comment last week on the podcast, Pete. Discovery, to its credit, does not take hard left turns. This is an example of seeing that arc happening and not out of the blue like, what? I mean, Pete, that would be like dropping out of the blue. There's another child of Sarek just out there. You know, there's a third a, child. Like, that would be with crazy. With a beard, no less. <laughs> um, we'll, we'll talk about that when we get to some communication today because uh, Fred picked up visually on some things and then uh had had to bring some of the the sad real world uh discussions to our friend in the netherlands <laughs> well again bottom line here we've been headed towards this reveal and now the episode the episode teeing it up of course the Telosians would like payment up front but burnham knows this is kind of more of like an act four reveal um <laughs> so I, I i like to pete the idea that or, or the question rather is this for their entertainment and it's like well sort of but it's also how they survive it's a reminder that you know the, the cage presents the Telosians as full-on bad guys the the menagerie shows us you know certainly the torture and like oh you're being bad now we're going to send you to the fire pit with styrofoam water um you know, torture bit. They're, they're still bad, but at the end of the day, they're kind of helpful too for the wounded Pike. Um, I think this is a nice midpoint in terms of our nostalgia, you know, that, Hey, they're weirdos that want to perv out on your, on your uh, private memories. Uh, but they're also going to kind of help you out a little bit too. That it's 
you know, pretexted that it's not for entertainment, that we're getting the info dump as well. It's serving the story. And like you said, it, it retcons originally these malicious memory, uh, you know, takers ultimately in the arc of the story to understand uh, they lack experience in these things. They want to gain knowledge. We, we move past it. And let's not forget the story service it does in this episode. They are helping to heal Spock's mind. Um, but they show Vina, the Talosians do as she really is. Um, and the idea that if you resist them, not only the abilities to uh, mask or to alter how things really are, um, but to, to help uh, is reaffirmed there that uh, they, they can dip into your memories, your hopes, your fears, your dreams. Um, to reorder Spock's mind, they're not being cruel, but they have to disengage him from lo logic and Burnham's got to pay that price, which she reluctantly does before they see Spock's mind. Pete, they go into Spock's mind. The night Burnham ran away from home. She ran into the woods. The Red Angel appeared to Spock, showing him her death at the hands of one of those harsh Vulcan bug creatures, which, Pete, for some people, it might look like stuff from Star Trek 2009. But you know what, Pete? Alien uh, killer bugs, they look the same in any universe. Uh, anyhow, Spock told his parents about the vision that he had of Burnham's death. They arrived just in time to save her. Her fate was changed by the angel that is highlighted by Spock. Years later, more recently, you know, in the six to eight month range, the angel appeared. Pete, that's when he took his leave and he went on his own sort of star trek. Yes, it guided him to a remote planet Let's talk about that when we look at theories matt could could be a couple places uh and showed him capital the end in a mind meld massive probes unleash swarms of smaller ones which decimate four planets later in this episode two identified as andoria and earth burnham is jarred from the experience and passes out just in time for an act break, too. After that break on Discovery in Stamets' quarters, Stamets has brought dinner for Culber. Uh, for them both, they sit somewhat awkwardly on the sofa and eat. Uh, that's not a slam in any way. Pete, who among us has not had a nice little, nice little meal on the sofa with a loved one? But it's meant to be awkward because these two are not jiving. Uh, for Culber, the, the soup is good yet unfamiliar, despite it being his favorite. He says his senses and feelings don't connect with his memory anymore. He wonders if his past is who he was and says that even Stamets is different now. Of course, Stamets never served dinner before uh, while simultaneously trying to pick up exactly where he left off. And uh, Culber storms out of the quarters. Yeah, Stamets wants to treat it like the miracle that it is, but that he's returned from the dead here. Uh, Culber angry with him stamets wants to know why put a pin in that for later pike pours tyler a drink and tells him he will not call off the search for burnham and spock 
Tyler says when they're not in their right minds, they're capable of anything. And he's got a little bit of experience there. Pike believes that about him, but not about Spock. Uh, but Tyler says all of Section 31 is watching, which isn't a surprise to Pike. Discovery's search only shines a light on Burnham. Why is Tyler with Section 31 then? He believes he can be of service with what he's become with the other dedicated people in the gray areas. Indeed, fire and fury in Section 31, but Tyler trying to make a difference there nonetheless. By the way, Pete, perhaps the biggest sin we've ever seen Tyler do, okay, maybe after the Culver killing, uh, all that, though that wasn't exactly Tyler's fault, Pete, he doesn't drink the drink from Pike. That leaves Pike with two drinks and an awkward social faux pas there. <sighs> I guess that's how they do it on Kronos. I don't know. Uh, but Pete, immediately after for us, but later for Pike, uh, Pike and Saru have a walk and talk. It appears that someone has sent out three unauthorized transmissions with petabytes of data. It's time to find some trace of the sender, find out who the bad guy is. You know, this a scene right after Tyler was acting like a bad guy, and in no way should we suspect that it actually is Arium. Not just anyone can access that array, and Saru tells them they will find out who sent it. Burnham awakes, and she and Spock testily catch up. She asks about the barren planets in his vision, the engineering comprehension necessary to build the Red Angel suit suggests it's a time traveler, and some of the memories it shared have yet to occur. But it's only a possible future, and he's not there to absolve Burnham. Though she risked everything to bring him to Talos, it was Spock who brought her her there to see what he's seen. But there's more. An impermeable layer of energy surrounds the Red Angel suit, a quantum field he could not infiltrate. But the thoughts, we were told several times in this episode, were human. There was loneliness and desperation. With that, the Talosians reappear. Uh, it's Time for the flashback to continue, this time with Spock in the psychiatric facility. Uh, he's told by a doctor that his hallucination appears to rather be a premonition. Uh, that means that the possible future is indeed possible. So how can he remember tomorrow? Somebody needs to use that as a title for a Star Trek episode, mm -hmm. Remembering Tomorrow, something like that. Sounds very classic Trek. Uh, with that, so with, with proof that Spock is not ill, he's ready to leave but he's told that 31 is on the way to take him to a more specialized facility. But uh, he still feels that it's time for him to go. He takes out the doctor and the two security aides, killing not a one of them, despite being accused of their deaths. So why does Section 31 believe he murdered them? Back on Discovery, Colbert takes a turbo lift. Great overhead shot there. It kind of you know, reminiscent of where we are, but really makes you think with the space that they're in uh, to figure out where it is to the mess hall and gets in an apologetic Tyler's face. He says it wasn't really him and Culber wants Voke to come out. Tilly tries to stop, but Saru says it must be allowed to play out as virtually the entire crew watches the fight. 
to be fair, Pete, it's just the entire bridge crew who all got off at the same, you know, their shift ended at the same time. And it was like, hey, we've had so much fun working on the bridge for the last eight hours. Let's go get ham sandwiches together. And, and Pete, that's where all this trouble happens. Um, but yeah, the, the the fight breaking out, quite a good fight there. Um, we get an act break and then Pike is surprised that Saru allowed that fight to continue. Saru says that it was a needed catharsis for, you know, humans with Klingons grafted in them versus formerly dead doctors. Pike wags his finger uh, for this time, making it clear that violence is not the answer and should not be used again. Doug Jones does not get enough credit past the prosthesis. And here, all of the acting happens with his tone of voice in talking about a doctor who's been brought back from the dead. Just a great, great inflection. The story sticks with Pike, who heads to his ready room, and Vina is there. She's missed him, the real him, uh, and he talks of missing her. Pete, this is a good reminder that though there is the happy ending in the menagerie of real Pike, now healed, or, you know, whatever vision healed going down from the surface with her uh in the cage it is illusion pike who goes with her down to the rock elevator same scene used differently in the two um but bottom line i had an, uh, the feeling watching this scene pete that in a strange sense it's almost as though the future of the menagerie hangs on this scene in terms of them having this emotional reconnection from the cage to this and kind of propelling them to to the menagerie episode even though the menagerie episode is low all these 50 years old oh it's absolutely a bridge he is learning not only for the story that they can be connected and oh look uh burnham and spock are also on this call but that the Talosians can recreate people for other people and fix the the missing parts of your uh your history which is a really interesting aspect as far as storytelling there's a little info sharing here the good commander saying that spock is innocent and they're using this method of communication so as not to be traced uh what did section 31 want with spock uh, those future memories of course uh because all will end if the angels design Capital A, capital D, at least in my notes, Pete, because that's a that's a new term to us. The angel's design, uh, if, if it isn't followed, there'll be all this uh, mayhem and death. It's the only way out. Uh, Vina, who, you know, master of the story clock here, says the window is closing. Discovery should hurry to them. But how, Pete, will it be a miraculous use of the uh, of the spore drive? It, it will not. Um, the only other thing important there that section 31, that's why they're sharing the vision. We, we defeat the subspace, uh, radio, which surely would be picked up on. Oh yes. And they were about to use invasive Terran tech to rip the memory and Spock's mind apart. As Jet Reno's drone cleans up the mess hall, Matt, Stamets wants Culber to get his hand looked at, but he doesn't want to let anyone fix things he can feel. Uh, 
it's floated perhaps that they should just go home, you know, back to their quarters, but it's not Culber's home anymore. Uh, this little scene gets interrupted by Stamets being paged to engineering. Surprise, Pete, they are going to use the spore drive after all, except when Arium, when Arium pushes the go button, she finds that the spore drive has been disengaged. What has corrupted the duotronics manually? Tilly's conclusion, deliberate sabotage. Tyler arrives at that exact moment because Pete, the universe is just messing with him in this episode. Um, people are wondering who has done this. Uh, security officer Nan wonders the same thing as Saru notes that the unauthorized signals were sent via Tyler's own command codes. Nan can't believe that this is not Tyler. Pete, they're all like literally circling him here. Uh, maybe he's even a sleeper agent again, you know, with that invasive mind tech that 31 has uh on his way out being restricted to quarters his badge stripped from him tyler is told uh that discovery risks or he tells them that discovery risks being tracked and uh pete's time for a little diversion pike orders discovery to starbase 11 and radios ahead for repairs to throw off any possible pursuit saru says starbase 11 is only two light years from Talos 4, which is why Pike is heading there so that they can then take a sharp left turn and suddenly sneak to the forbidden system. The three lights flash again in Arium. Arium's eyes? Making it clear, at least in my mind, that she's the sleeper. By the way, Pete, Starbase 11, that's the one that they went to in the Menagerie. Uh, but we go to the surface of Talos 4, where it's time for Burnham and Spock to leave. But first, she must share her memory. We see it too. The adorable young Spock, adorably clinging on to his adoptive sister. Here we are, Pete. The painful memory. Her pushing him away, calling him a freak that is incapable of love. He had wanted to learn of Earth, to live there, maybe with her. But she pushes him away again. This is the grand painful reveal pete in star trek fashion classic small c star trek fashion the great ill done was one of of, of personal insult and a lack of empathy it is a heartbreaking scene and we witness it all i love the effect matt of the child actors and then the uh, the storytelling device of sharing the memory allows the adult actors to replace them all with similar pathos. It's just very, very well done. Um, and it's this type of emotion that will allow Spock later to commune with an alien creature that's also a mother and experience pain. In the present day, Spock is aware of Burnham's tactic to push him away for the safety of the family. He is grateful now in what is a subtle masterclass in terms of Ethan Peck understanding that oftentimes with the Spock character, you don't go for big, you go for focused uh, like a laser. Uh, for him, for him saying that he's grateful that uh, he learned that his humanity could be a danger. He's simultaneously being cool and Vulcan and also putting her on full emotional blast. The wound pushed him toward a greater focus on logic, but time has always been his constant. And without that, 
he is adrift and must rebuild that foundation to prevent the massacre of entire civilizations. Says he was wrong to idolize her. Vina pushes us along here, tells them discovery is close, and there's another ship in pursuit. All of this a reminder that Vulcan burns are most cold. Uh, but as you said, Vina mentioned the discovery. Story goes to the, the discovery, which gets a call from Leland telling them to drop out of warp. Um, Pike does just that and quickly has Owo beam them up, or at least start to beam them up. She gets the lock, but so has the Section 31 ship. Leland calls again. If both ships pull, then Burnham and Spock will die, their atoms scattered. Pike pauses, hearing Vina's voice. Uh, I would also argue maybe Pete, hidden in the narrative, hidden from we the audience, is maybe some extra, like, hey, trust us. It's your Telosian pals. You know, let, let Leland beam them up. It'll all work out. But bottom line, Pike orders the transporter disengaged, and the bridge crew seems crushed. Leland orders Discovery to Starbase 11 to await disciplinary action and warps away. Georgiou points out how pleased he is with himself. Discovery picks up a shuttle from Talos 4? What? But their scans are blocked? What's going to happen, Matt? Well, I know what isn't going to happen. Pike's not going to hail that shuttle. They wouldn't want any communication. Um and, and not knowing what's up with the shuttle, uh, we head to the Section 31 ship. It seems that Burnham and Spock are, are not saying much. Then there's the great line from Burnham, say goodbye, Spock. And we get goodbye, Spock, from Spock, as both Spock and Burnham disappear. Cut to the Discovery shuttle bay, where Burnham and Spock, the real ones, arrive. Pike explains Telosian projection. Uh, and is Spock all right? Is he ready to ride into the danger? And is he smiling ever so slightly? I would argue, Pete, he's smiling with his eyes, not his mouth. That shows also the Peck is a great actor. Uh, Burnham is the one that raises an eyebrow. Welcome to Discovery. Georgiou explains to Leland that the Telosians tried this gambit with her once, and she blew them and their stupid singing plants off the face of the planet. She could have warned Leland, though, but she wants to see him explain this to the admirals. On the Discovery, there is some recap. The Red Angel is a human who's trying to stop the eradication of all sentient life. Discovery is about to become the most wanted ship in the galaxy. Spock's recommendation, they run. Pike starts to give the bridge crew an out, but they want a course heading. He has the crew time for them to run pete just as we have headed on the run threats aplenty let's start with Giorgio. to talk about what happened in the final sequence there when she uh, details the murder of the remaining telosians we now need that flashback to occur in the spinoff series. I want to know what they showed her. I want to know how they projected somebody on there, how she discovered it, and, and just see the wrath of Georgiou. <laughs> Maybe that's the subtitle of the series. Who knows? Um, she, of course, perfectly delicious in this episode. Uh, you know, it's such great use of her seeing her as this 
second place officer on the ship. Although I believe Pete, this is the first time she's given the rank of captain. Leland's a captain. Pike's a captain. Some captains have more captain than other captains because Leland can order Pike to slow down and Giorgio can. It's a lot of captains. But let's stick with Giorgio, uh, who this slow destabilization that's going on because yeah. she wants the big chair. It's wonderful to see it play out over these episodes. She has the admiralty control, etc., eating out of her hand. It is only a matter of time till she, behind the back or right into the rib cage, stabs Leland. Well, let's move our threat discussion to Leland. Um, we go from his warmth in the last episode, uh, which. I think increasingly we can assume was not genuine. Uh, he's not really concerned about getting Spock all fixed up and Burnham having some sleepy time at the Starbase. Uh, but we also see here a man who I think is capable of acting more desperately as time goes on because he is going to realize that courtesy of Giorgio and Discovery and these failures that he's losing his, uh, his grip on control. Leland has the affability of the cool dad who is really set up a separate family in another state. <laughs> wow. I, that is difficult to argue with. On the topic of family, Culber rejecting his his family, his pairing with Stamets, so it would seem. Um, certainly a lot going on with him that I think that though we have not gone through literally what he has gone through and though i don't think it's a particular direct analog to uh, something like ptsd although it certainly might be i think we are nonetheless kind of uh, instinctually sympathetic to culber yeah and let's understand what this actually is and explain what it isn't so conflict is how you move a story forward that's storytelling 101 it cannot be as simple as Culber is back from the dead and he and Stamets happily ever after and pick up exactly where they left off like nothing has changed. They're acknowledging the circumstances. There has to be a distance between them that must eventually be overcome or resolve itself another way. This is not repeat not as Wilson Cruz had to address on Twitter to harassment this week. They are not, they have not changed the doctor's sexual orientation and that he is no longer gay. That is vile that people even needed to say that to the actor as if that decision would have been made. I think as well from a story perspective, uh, let's keep in mind, you know, yes, Wilson Cruz gets the credit in the credits, but. You know, he's not in every episode. He's not credited in every episode. So I think there's a little question in the writer's room in terms of what do you use Culber for? Like, they've moved out of this dynamic of, for example, I think of uh, Denise Crosby. Uh, I'm tired of standing at the top of the horseshoe with nothing to do for hours and hours during shooting uh, in episodes that don't really involve me other than saying things like, hail coming in and shall I fire phasers? So... That's an older style, you know, TV, that model, next, you know, the next generation era and whatnot. Colburn needs to be given stuff. Otherwise, he's not going to be in an episode, uh, regardless of whether he's credited or not. There's got to be some story stuff to have him in there. Otherwise, 
why have him in the story so there's got to be this conflict to help drive things and take him on this journey and take us on the journey as well let's look at aram matt who yes it's completely clear to the viewer she is the sleeper agent the spore drive goes down massive bits of information flying via subspace to unknown destinations to me it's okay that this is not some big giant mystery uh we've as i said before we've fully settled into this notion that discovery gives you the leading edge and gives you kind of enough uh, enough warning where you don't feel sandbagged out of the blue um if anything else pete it's kind of the opposite of the you know the sixth sense oh my goodness they just pulled off some sneak to me the audience we're the ones screaming at the tv going no saru rerun those codes handsome tyler is not the the uh the, the guilty one here look for proof that uh somebody looked up his codes and used them it's the computer lady um so we kind of get that anticipatory tension there as we know that eventually it's going to circle on her and uh, again with her kind of a likely candidate for the red angel as well or at the very least having some sort of you know computer involvement to it um we're the ones putting the pieces together a bit faster than our than our heroes and it's deft story crafting in that they all suspect tyler because prior sleeper agent part klingon the dubious nature of his makeup and they're continuing to give us very clear nods that Arium is not in her right state. So, Pete, we are seeing the Discovery crew showing prejudice, maybe not yes. in a racial sense, although, I mean, the Klingon component, maybe there there is prejudice going on because of Tyler's, you know, racial past. To be fair, also his behavioral past. You know, you can look at somebody's. You know, if they keep doing bad things and anticipate more bad things in the future, but they're ignoring certainly this other evidence. Also, there's that quick, you know, gee whiz, we have yet to find anything from the probe. It's all, you know, I, I think that too will end up uh, as part of uh, Arium's machinations, no pun intended. Pete, last bad force here, those, uh, those rejuvenated Telosians. I think the thing that places them firmly on this list is the payment aspect that they solicit from Burnham, that we need to see this, that Venus says, you know, it, it can be tough if they force the memory out of you. So they still have that streak. They're not unnecessarily cruel is what she says. So they can be cruel uh, when they don't get what they want and again, it's all in service of the story. You need to show us these things so we can show you, the viewer. I'll just mention, since we're focused on the Telosians at this point, I the makeup job was fine. I think you could have kept it a bit closer to the original. Fine, you want to make the back not look like a rear end. I totally understand that. Um, I, I wasn't crazy about the makeup reboot i think the costumes were a perfect reinterpretation in terms of yes we're gonna go from blue cloth from the cloth store cut to be shapeless to you know we're gonna get something textured and whatnot um i'll mention this too pete 
that original head throbbing effect that didn't always work, but that was there as some sort of pump uh, in in the cage to be replaced here with kind of a pulsing CG vein effect. I thought it was a step down to if the, the thing was actually pulsing on camera, it would have been pretty cool. Completely disagree. I unabashedly love this rebooted revised appearance of the Telosians. Um, I did not know until last week, all of the Telosian actors in the original series were women. Um, and that they have a man and a woman here in the speaking roles. There's another one we, I guess we can assume because a little taller and the face looks similar to the other man. I love the, the addition of the really prominent proboscis that, that runs straight up the head and, and they lost the butt in the back that we know the not jeans Trek people are, are completely uh, freaking out about that, that, you know, the, the butthead aliens don't have butts on the back of their heads anymore. Okay. Let's open up those long range sensors to talk some theories. Pete, first one off the bat here. Maybe it's a, maybe it's a fat pitch down the middle is part of the reason that Culber is so angry, so unfamiliar with some of these particulars. Is he perhaps mirror Culber? No, I think this is our Culber. They're obviously addressing, it was a big decision to bring him back from the dead and one that could not come without cost. He spent significant time away. He's had his soul detached from his physical body. We've already laid the story track via Dr. Pollard that his senses need to reacclimate to his brand new body that lacks the physical scars but maintains the memories. So it's all part of the healing process. Not all healing is without pain. Uh, another one here, Pete. This could be a theory that goes nowhere, but when Section 31 is on the holophone with the, uh, with, with the Admiralty there, we have the Andorian uh, who we've seen before. We have the mm-hmm. Tellarite who we've seen before. We have uh, the new Vulcan uh, Admiral, Admiral Pitar, who is new. Then there is an unnamed Admiral there, uh, appears to be human. I got the sense maybe they're... Maybe they're seeding something big. Maybe it's a cameo of, you know, such and such producer or Jeffrey Hunter's son or, you know, something like that. But it it was almost kind of weird how he was in the scene but played no role and wondered if if there's anything on your long-range sensors for him. I did notice that. I don't have any direct insight in terms of that other than, hey, let's let's have a fourth person here who never speaks. What I think – needs to and will be fleshed out is the nature of control and section 31. The first time we heard it, it was as if control was the head of section 31 and seems to be an independent um, entity. So really need to understand the nature of what's going on in Starfleet, different divisions, what gets reported to whom, what is separate, 
clearly there are varying agendas. Obviously, we are now past the midpoint of the season, and uh, we have less episodes with Anson Mounts Pike uh, ahead of us than we do behind us. Uh, I know much was made, uh, perhaps mismade, of Anson Mount declaring himself uh, an out-of-work actor at the end of the season. Pete, that's because his season was up. But any shot of him recurring next season, uh, much perhaps as uh, as, uh, we've seen Michelle Yeoh do? Well, I think this episode speaks the most towards where his character is heading, obviously with that end date in the menagerie. How soon they choose to hasten his uh, demise to that condition, what with, you know, time travel as a trope in this story remains to be seen. Let's also not forget, too, that uh, his injury, as we find him in the menagerie, is fairly recent. Uh, So it's the late 2260s uh, when that injury occurs. So um, about 10 years or so away from what we're seeing now. So I I personally would not expect end of season is, oh, no, did you hear what happened on that old J-class starship? there There was a baffle plate that exploded. There was so much Delta radiation Pike is wounded. But Pete, what theories are on your end? No probe parts from the debris that Discovery is tasked to sweep through. So obviously they've not dissolved in some kind of, you know, time travel covering uh, montage. But, uh, you know, where has... Has Arium put them? Are we going to get a scene in a in a future episode of her going back to her quarters? And uh, you know, I think of the Family Guy episode where they show the Tooth Fairy um, in a in a cutaway jumping into a pile of teeth and then doing like a snow angel. Uh, we we're going to see her do that with the uh, the probe parts. Well, we need some loose thread upon which the crew can start to tug and go oh, wait, this is the first thing, and I'm proposing, Pete, the first thing is the missing probe parts, and maybe Arium won't be doing snow angels in her quarters, but probably, or my prediction would be, something involving starting to find these probe parts, that'll be step one, then step two, oh my goodness, she got this uh, transmission, oh my goodness, she's the one that faked the message and the petabytes of data out, and oh, she has framed Tyler, and there's going to be that snowball effect from there. Uh, And I would bet that it starts with the search for the probe. There was some consternation in last week's episode by some viewers. Wait, there's rain on Vulcan as if that couldn't happen where vegetation exists. Um, In terms of previous storytelling, so the forest that uh, Michael escaped into when she ran away as a child was referenced in this episode as being part of the forge, the forge only ever being Matt in Star Trek enterprise, this, uh, desert wasteland, really, really hot that, uh, humans would struggle to be into. Uh, I think it's just fine that before you get to the desert part, there are some wooded areas. Yeah. I mean, I'm not, I'm not concerned in an episode that leans into 
what is the meeting up point of, you know, episodes shot in 19, you know, elements of Star Trek created for 1964 filming, you know, that of the cage. And why doesn't it match up perfectly to stuff made in 2016, 2017 for this? And the episode's conclusion is, um, they just match up, mash them together. It's, it's not going to be a perfect handoff. Uh, it's all Star Trek. Same thing here. If we're going to expect that Jeffrey Hunter uh, a couple years later looks like Anson Mount, then it's, you know, if you can accept that, then you can also accept the same logic that on this fake weirdo alien planet where there's monsters that are that will kill people, that there's a forest by a desert. Like, that's if that's what's getting you hung up on this, then it's just time to take a little little deep breath here. Um, I love that the Red Angel mystery with each episode giving us further breadcrumbs, making us speculate all the more who it might be. So this episode's details that it's human. Uh, Spock says her, uses the pronoun her. Uh, But I don't know if we can definitively uh, apart from him saying definitively that it's a human, which it, it may or may not be. It could be grafted human memories on top of a robot person or whatever. But the upshot is it's shown him these things. It changed Burnham's fate, the the possible vision of her death at the hands of that monster then changed with Spock telling his parents who found her in the nick of time. Um, I think it really shifts the mystery back to the really strong potential of Michael Burnham being the red angel. I think too, the notion of fate being changed, I know because of the Kelvin timeline, because some fans are angry, blah, 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 you know, the immutability of of the prime timeline is something that's been highlighted and you know we we see kurtzman ask you know which timeline is this from people who i i guess care enough to sit through a panel but don't know you know things like that but i just want to point out another timeline change pete and that in the next generation the stuff with yesterday's enterprise and tasha going back in time which created its own new timeline that we didn't know about until dramatic reveal there's tasha's daughter with the romulans and so on and so forth i'm certainly not trying to suggest hey discovery is going to use burnham and the red angel and spock as the the story out of hey there was no burnham because she got killed originally and that took us all the way to star trek now and then because of time travel now there's burnham who didn't die in the forge um but I feel like that could be an acceptable storyline or at the very least, you know, floated out there that like, hey, maybe part of the reason you heard about didn't hear about Burnham. Uh, one way of viewing it is because in one timeline she did die. Um, probably that would that would get argued out of the writer's room because they wouldn't want to confuse people with multiple timelines. But again, just pointing out we've had multiple timelines occur in the next generation and no one's you know head fell off or anything like that. Speaking of time, Matt, the planet, the remote planet that Spock went to that he needed to wear his uh, G.I. Joe 
uh, storm shadow costume there covering his face with his little parka. Um, what was that? Um, well, uh, I'm going to guess Hoth, but I'm thinking that that could be <laughs> wrong time, wrong galaxy. Look, looked a little built up as far as structure for Hoth. Some of the little structures, though, it seemed very reminiscent of the planet upon which they find the Guardian of Forever. Now, it can't be that, right? Because the first time they find that in the original series is the first time they find that. But we're in a time travel story and a red angel that travels through time appears to Spock there. And, you know, it's as easy as the Guardian saying, and thus your memories shall be removed, or, you know, words to that effect. I guess it comes down to this. And I always I always like to filter everything through the world of the story and then the world of the, the writing room. Do they go for two fan service uh, touchstones in this season? Well, wait, they already have. We've gotten... The Enterprise and number one a little bit. I think there's the expectation that we get glorious, loving, reimagining without overimagining of the Enterprise Bridge and just get that as a get that as a as a moment. Um, so that's kind of you know the Enterprise is kind of touchstone one. Obviously, this Telosian stuff is touchstone two. Spock also in the mix, of course. Um, do we get a third thing this season where we go back to a classic Trek thing, you know, versus say, Hey, this is new Spock turf. Nobody really knows what he did all these years ago. I, I don't know. I don't know that we go there this season. We certainly could. And now's the time to do it with time travel. And you know what? Shame on those who bet against spoiler Pete, but I'm going to give a soft no to this one. Listen, it's, it's all on the table. I think. Uh, speaking of on the table, this transceiver array encrypted transmission, massive to an unknown source, Matt. Did Arium send this to the Borg? You read my mind, particularly when we see the you know rather mechanized destruction of all sentient life uh, from far off in the future. Uh, obviously it's not a cube obviously it's not a sphere but and of course look obviously photon torpedoes are mechanized and ships are mechanized maybe maybe there's there's people like you and me inside that ship but again kind of you know arium as this you know machine person hybrid um time travel a possibility in some way um I feel like there aren't pieces to put together to suggest the Borg, but I feel like there's something in the air that seems Borgish. Wouldn't it be ultimately really interesting that the Borg, the the greatest threat that ever came out of the next generation era, possibly the the second greatest villain species behind the Klingons, as far as the history of Star Trek is concerned, was created by a robotic starfleet officer the only thing that i think might slow down that theory is again how much into star trek production past does this show want to dip into versus you know finding their own strange new worlds how much of this is a a reboot a remash a, a retcon and how much is 
you know, new people that we get to know. Um, time will tell. If Spock did not murder the doctor and the two guards on Starbeast five, who did, or were they even murdered? Well, you had used wording before regarding, um, uh, you know, regarding their murder. And I took a slightly different interpretation in terms of assuming this, assuming that their murder has been falsified uh, for whatever evil purposes of Section 31, but that it's been, um, you know, that they're all... they're all fine somewhere and they're being told, hey, keep a low profile while we do this secret mission that's super important. And I think that that also gives us a little wiggle room to to reaffirm that Section 31 is maybe having overreach in the name of security and that, uh, you know, too many rights have been given up and maybe a little kind of Star Trek moral moment at the end of this uh, at this 31 story. Saru's evolution continues to be pointed to. He lets this brutal fight go down under the the labeling of catharsis. Is Saru becoming an apex predator? Well, first of all, brutal Pete. In the last week or so, um, Wilson Cruz has uh, shared some pictures of his physique, and uh, dude can handle himself in a fight. I suspect. Uh, ditto for you know the the half Klingon, half human Tyler. So, you know, that said, people should not be fist fighting to solve their problems. This is the Star Trek future. And, um, you know, I wonder how much of a Saru tale to his story there will be, T-A-I-L, in terms of, obviously, he still is kind of settling into his new perspective. Are we going to get, you know dramatic reveal at the end of this season and it's Saru in a cocoon because he's becoming really terrible uh or is this just is this something that you do a couple episodes afterwards to kind of excuse a story thing and say oh wait we have Saru who has a new mentality great we can have this fight that lasts you know 30 seconds um I would suspect it's more just Saru settling into his new current state and not an ongoing evolution Last from me, Matt. Should I be worried about my favorite couple on the show, Stamets and Culber? Indications thus far point to yes. And again, not really having a sense of what is the what is the show's intent for the Culber character. Um, you know, he was in what, maybe four or five episodes of the first season, and then you know, killed spectacularly, breaking our hearts, etc. Does he have? Does he Culber have to stay on the ship for Wilson Cruz to be part of the show? Well, of course not. He could get off at the next starbase. Okay, fine. They're on the run. Maybe that adds to it that he can't get space now. Uh, you know, physical space from his from his uh, compatriot there. But Culber could be written off the ship and not be out of the show still be in the same number of episodes next season as this season. So I think you should worry because there's plenty of story potential there and you can bring them back for as much or as little as you want to in future seasons. I will not worry Stamets and Culver forever. With that, let's go to hailing frequencies. Hailing frequencies open, sir. 
Pete, no Twitter poll this week on account of us having spent this uh, this International Women's Day weekend watching Captain Marvel. Going to podcast that in a couple days. Racing home to our respective homes, watching this episode of Discovery, we rewatching it, hearing what people have to say, etc. But we did have the tweet. We went back. So what'd you think? First tweet, Pete, comes from a, a fresh-faced young man by the name of Fred from the Netherlands. He says, I think it was kind of brave to use some scenes from the cage in the previously on section of the episode. I liked it very much. Different categories of people could use or misuse this. Haters, canon lovers, canon nitpickers, never seen the cage, real fans. Yeah, I completely agree with all of that. And of course, Fred picks up on it. Uh, also, some tweets here from Annie Harrington, who who continues to be thought-provoking in her dialogue. Uh, she says, I'm losing my mind. That opening sequence, singing plants, Michael and Spock's gut-wrenching childhood exchange, their chemistry as bickering siblings, the sexiest fight ever, E-V-A-R, <laughs> between Culber and Tyler. Uh, I know sexy wasn't the point, but it was profound and also dang fire emoji she goes on to say i'm pretty convinced that we're going to learn about an in-universe reason for the arium casting change next episode sarah midich tweeted more to come in response to someone being glad to see her again Ooh, so exciting to see where this goes lastly pete from annie can we talk about the eerily perfect casting for vena yeah that was really well done uh i almost wondered for a little bit were we seeing sarah midich in, a, in another role, I mean, blonde actress, the lighting in some of the early portions, uh, what with the strange planetary lens they use uh, to make it look like a completely different quarry than the one they filmed in last season for the, the resistance episode in the mirror universe. Uh, but obviously it's not the same actress. Uh, also a tweet from Jamie Piper uh, speaking about this episode. Excellent. Really enjoying Discovery. A well-done episode. I'm very pleased. I uh, had a tweet from Mark Hensley. Uh, going back required, trying to preserve what was and bring it what is. I believe that was successfully accomplished. Uh, then Pete, a tweet from James Killen. That's, uh, pardon me, James. That's at Big Killen. Uh, we boldly went where we had gone before, and it was Thriller. <laughs> that's a good one robert t frost doesn't tweet matt so he couldn't participate in the weekly twitter poll which we didn't have this week uh because maybe the best day ever between captain marvel and then this particular episode of star trek discovery but he said insert his five stars into the four star scale for this week's episode if memory serves well, Pete, that means that since he's the only one who voted because I didn't run the poll, that means that uh, that gives us gives us an average of five stars. So well I, done. I'm completely fine with that rating. That that works. Robert T. Frost also wrote in to the Fantastic Geek Facebook page for last week's episode. Here we are halfway through this season two, and we are having a wonderful time hypothesizing about the identity of the Red Angel. It occurred to me that time travel is a major recurring theme in the different shows in varying degrees. The original series had uh, episodes, as did The Next Generation. Enterprise used it to drive the story through seasons in Voyager as a kind of series wrap-up. I began to wonder if the Red Angel was somehow related to the temporal Cold War from Enterprise, with Discovery being roughly 100 years in the future from Enterprise. 
It could be time for more meddling. However, the further into the season we have progressed, the more I am thinking, no, we are not. I think we would have been given some tiny hint of the temporal cold war by now. Like John Stewart, here is my totally wrong prediction for the identity of the Red Angel. Wesley Crusher. About 120 years in the future from Discovery's time, Cadet Crusher leaves Starfleet to follow a being known as the Traveler and learn how to become a Traveler himself. Memory Alpha describes the Traveler in part as being as a being who had a certain abilities like ability to act like a lens with focused thought, which allowed him to alter space, time, and warp fields with the power of his mind. He could phase out of time and dimension and move between planets and starships. These abilities were based on his ability to focus the energy of thoughts and in his advanced understanding of the nature of reality. If Wesley Crutcher has fully developed his multidimensional abilities, he certainly would be capable of feats performed by the Red Angel. I think it would also cause many fans to have a mental breakdown to have Crusher back on the show. That's enough pot stirring for now. Till next episode, your friend, Bob. Well, I guess all theories potential. I'll just point out, Pete, that uh, traveler actor Eric Meniuk, who did not have the success he wanted in uh, in Hollywood, particularly after being passed by for uh, another role, which was playing Mr. Data. I didn't get that. Got the traveler, showed up in two episodes. Uh, continues to have a successful uh, law practice, legal practice in Los Angeles. So you want to get Eric Meniuk back as the traveler from the far, far future I mean, like, literally, I'm looking at his website now, navlaw.com. You can find Eric Many pretty quickly on there. So he's still there, Pete, if you want the Traveler to return. I don't know if that is in support of the Wesley Crusher theory, but uh, all things possible. Before we get to Fred's audio, Matt, he had left a couple of posts on the Facebook page. One, a picture side-by-side of Ethan Peck, bearded Spock, and Cybok from Star Trek V, The Final Frontier. He says, not too bad a resemblance. Spock and his full Vulcan half-brother Cybok could almost be an older version of the same person. And I replied to him that there are, quote, truthers, unquote. I'm not sure that term will even translate properly, Fred. Like the fools who maintain President Obama was not born in America, who insist Ethan Peck is not playing Spock but Cybok, because Gene Roddenberry himself did not make Discovery. Well, <laughs> Gene Roddenberry also said that Star Trek V was apocryphal, so I wonder what that does for, <laughs> for the not-Gene's-Trek truthers. But Pete, in truth, the Fred segment, beloved by our listeners, are you ready for some Fred? Always. Hello, Matt and Pete. This is Fred from the Netherlands with some feedback for Star Trek Discovery Season 2, Episode 8, slash Star Trek The Original Series, Season 1, Episode 0. I think it is fantastic that they took some scenes from The Cage, unannounced as previously on. It was also, I think, a little brave to do this. 
because people who are really going to compare these scenes from 1966 to 2018, all kinds of people can do different things with this. The haters can use it and the canon nitpickers can do something with it and people who just love everything can do something with it, like me, namely like it. So yeah, I think that was a brave decision. For me, it was a very nice, respectful homage to the old series. Another homage to the TOS series is, I think, Vina's short skirt. And I don't think that a short skirt is a prohibited piece of clothes, that it's always uh, misogynist or looking at women at a certain way. I mean, women choose sometimes to wear these themselves because they like it. And, well, especially on International Women's Day, which is what the day I record this, this, of course, is a topic. But I think they did it a very, very respectful way as an homage to TOS and not overdo it to show these skirts all the time or the, her legs all the time. It, it was done in a respectful way, as it is actually in Commander Nan, who also wears a skirt although she has some leggings or something under it, so no naked legs. So, nice references to TOS. The second topic I want to discuss is Arium. First off, Arium is purring like a cat. Perhaps she did it before, but in this episode, where she becomes more and more important, and that's actually a, a, a no for me, it's uh, much louder than it was. So just as a tool to get more attention to her. And the second thing about Arium is there was, for people who watch the Orville, a, just recently, is that the Kalon, which is also an artificial intelligence race, is taking over. If we look what is said about the future, what Spock says, then it's quite similar because it's the extinction of all life forms and Probably Arium is not a life form at, at all. So that could be quite similar to the Orville, if this is true. I noticed that a lot of very nice views are mirrored. And this is because the floors of the Discovery are so, so shiny. I had several very, very nice symmetry shots just because of this mirroring of the shiny floors. On the other hand, it's unreal in the scene where Colbert and Stamets break up. Very emotional scene in the canteen. We see these little drones flying around. I think that are cleaning drones, although we don't see them clean. But I think they are responsible for these shiny floors. And I posted some, uh, some examples of this on the Facebook page. And it reminded me, actually, of the season two, episode four, episode mirror, mirror of the original series. Not because it's about the alternative universe, but just because of the, the name of this episode. I think the childhood quarrel that Michael and Spock had was a little too predictable. I think we all knew that Michael would push Pock away, and in that way he wouldn't follow her, and in that way she could protect the rest of the family against the logic extremists. One last topic. In the previous podcast, Pete said 
one more before we get to Fred, who, by the way, has never left a an iTunes review. I'd be really interested in reading an iTunes review left by Fred. Uh, to be uh, fair, Pete, I don't know that we in the United States would be able to see. Yeah. Well, actually, there is an iTunes review and it's a four star review from November 8, 2017. And it says in Dutch client review, we don't have enough reviews for this podcast to give an average. It says, Matt and Pete, who I know from the Marvel Cinematic Universe, do a terrific job in the Star Trek universe as well. With their deep voices and a little slow in pace, just perfect for listening on the road. And between brackets, cycling, for instance. Would be five stars if they would watch their email with listener feedback a little better. And actually, this me putting an iTunes review after mailing you, which didn't succeed in getting any answers, resulted in me going on Twitter and a few months later on Facebook. So I kept myself away from social media for a very, very, very long time. But I just noticed that email is not the medium of this age anymore. And after going to social media, the contact with you just went perfectly. So now you get five stars. Greetings. All the best. Fred from the Netherlands. Fred had actually sent a screenshot of Dutch iTunes. So number one, it, it's a first world problem, Matt, when you're heard in 86 countries. And, you know, I don't know if there are 86 versions of iTunes out there, but apparently we don't have enough ratings to actually generate a, a user rating on iTunes. But we have the lovely review there from uh, Fred that I was able to see partially in Dutch. Fred bringing up Vina's short skirt and uh, interpreting it as a sign of liberation. Pete, she dresses that way because she wants to dress that way, and that's okay. Absolutely, as, as well as non with the slight alteration of the Enterprise uniforms, what with skirts, but modifying that to the Discovery uniform. She's the only one we've seen aboard the Discovery wearing a skirt, but it's different. Like you said, they wear what they want to wear, and that's just fine. Fred also mentioning Discovery's shiny floors, and he's right. In that breakup scene, it is exceedingly shiny, um, but uh, of course there to provide some extra visual delights for us. Yeah, I continue to marvel at the cinematography of this show, whether it's the the shiny floors, whether it's the ability to make their quarters, their spaces look as massive as they do on uh, this show, on this production. It's truly a marvel. And Fred may be a little let down by uh, the the revelation that Burnham pushed Spock away. Did that meet your expectations, Pete? I completely love the scene. I said before that they flip it back and forth with the actors, that they filmed it with both sets, and they deploy that so deftly. Um, I, I felt the heartbreak. Well, Pete, making sure our hearts get mended, particularly anytime if the old podcast bill comes along, it's the people who go to patreon.com slash fantastic geek and help help us lend a hand or they they lend a hand and help us. 
I think the thing, too, that listeners need to understand about Patreon is that some patrons don't stay forever, that, you know, that kind of shifts around from person to person and group to group. We're ultra thankful for everybody who would even consider contributing. But, you know, some people are there for a certain amount of time and then they come and go. It's always a good time for new people to step on up. Absolutely. And Pete, all sorts of uh, little incentives once people get there. But of course, the best one is being able to talk to you on Twitter. And that's free. How can people do so? You can find me on Twitter at Peter, P-I-E-T-E-R-J-K-E-T-E-L-A-A-R, K-E-T-E-L-A-A-R, 10,329 followers. Can't be wrong. And while I'm personally on Twitter as Looking Back Lost, do be in touch with the podcast. Comment on FantasticGeek.com. Check us out on Twitter, on Instagram, on Gmail, where we are Fantastic Geek as well. But wait, Pete, there's more. Facebook.com slash Fantastic Geek with the PH, all one word, like it today. Well, Pete, for those listening on the Pop Culture Podcast feed, we will be back in a couple days to talk the latest episode of God Friended Me. But before that, we'll be talking about Captain Marvel, the latest entry in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Uh, but then, of course, back next weekend for more Discovery and really the best of times when it comes to what it is that we want to cover. Yeah, if you're interested in that discussion on Captain Marvel, get us your thoughts, whether it's through Facebook, Twitter, email, etc. Well, Pete, with that, I will say adios to all our listeners and give you the final word. Can we have a better version of this conversation? <laughs>